I want to ask a big question this morning as we come to the end of the book of Ruth. And the question I want to ask and I want each of you to answer in your own minds is this. What does it mean to be truly blessed? What does it mean to be truly blessed? Really think to yourself, what does it mean to be truly blessed? There's many reasons why we might have trouble answering that question. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you haven't really thought too hard about that question specifically. Of course, you've asked yourself questions, uh, and probably asked yourself the question even indirectly every day, what would make me happy? Maybe even a bit more substantive would be saying, what would make me truly happy? And maybe even on the other end of that significant spectrum would be the question, what is the meaning of life? Kind of a way of asking the same question in a different way. And so I ask you, do you have answers to those questions? Maybe you're here and you're a Christian, and this concept and even the language of something or someone being truly blessed is jarring to your ears. When you hear this concept of being truly blessed, you think of immediately the distortions that come to your mind about what it means to be blessed. You think of the false gospels that are prevalent in our ears and in our social media and in our, uh, you know, coming at us from every front. Things like the prosperity gospel. And you know that you need to understand that to be blessed by God is not the same as and is so much more than this message of health, wealth, and prosperity. But with all that aside, the Bible does talk a lot about what it means to be truly blessed. In Ruth chapter 4, this little book in the Old Testament gets us to a place through this wonderful story, this story that starts with an incredibly dark backdrop and ramps up to sure hope. It gets us to a place where we start to see tangibly, in, in huge ways, love and blessing. It, in a sense, answers the question, what does it mean to be truly blessed? And the book of Ruth, in a way, serves as a bit of a microcosm for the whole story of the Bible. It's a story about love and blessing. It's a story about God saving his people. But Ruth is not only a microcosm. It is a puzzle piece in the whole story of redemption. It's not just a case study. It is a critical part of moving forward the story of God making a way to save his people. And so again, when we talked about on week one, the book of Ruth, it feels very domestic. It doesn't feel very grand. It's very isolated. It's a story about a few specific characters who really amazing things happen through the story. But it isn't till the end, here at Ruth chapter 4, that we really see most clearly why the book of Ruth is written. You remember I asked you that question on the the first Sunday that we started in the book of Ruth. Why is this book in our Bibles? Well, I think Ruth chapter 4 tells us. If you remember episode 1, it's what we called chapter 1, and it was the return. It was the story of Naomi and Ruth returning from Moab. Because if you remember, Naomi went with her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons. They went to Moab in search of food. 
tragically, Elimelech and both sons died. Now, both sons had gotten married to Moabite women, and one of them stayed back with the Moabites, but we see that Ruth and Naomi return. So that was episode one, the return. They come back to Bethlehem, where they were from, or where Naomi was from. Then we get to chapter two, episode two, is the refuge. We see, even in a small sense, that refuge was found. They returned. There was this glimmer of hope left at the end of chapter one. It said it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Little cliffhanger for us at the end of chapter one. And we see that refuge is found. Because of the barley harvest, Ruth was able to go do the hard and risky work of gleaning, picking up the scraps from the field. And she has demonstrated, uh, or Boaz demonstrates remarkable kindness to her. This man who owns the field that she so happens to end up at, and he so happens to be there. Remarkable kindness is shown. An amazing refuge is found. Then in chapter 3, episode 3, it was the Redeemer. The Redeemer. Because now some real meat starts getting put on the bones. The refuge that they found was provisional food. It was really good refuge. Uh, but it was not, certainly, it wasn't complete. And so chapter 3 is where we see things start to happen. Naomi comes up with this plan, tells Ruth to essentially go and propose in a very bold and dangerous way to Boaz and appeal to him and say, you are one of our redeemers, redeem us. It's more than companionship that Ruth was after. They needed redemption. So that was episode 3, the redeemer. And if you remember, again, it ended with sure hope. Again, a cliffhanger. Chapter 3 ended where Naomi was saying that Boaz will not rest. He will settle the matter today. Because if you remember, there was another redeemer. There was another family member who was closer in line than Boaz. So we've gone through the return, the refuge, the redeemer, where hope is sure, but it is yet to be realized. And this morning, we have episode four, the reason. Now, Josiah really wanted me to call this sermon a new hope. Uh, it just felt so natural. Episode four. And honestly, it is a very ap applicable title to Ruth chapter four. And so that can be the subtitle, okay? So it's Ruth four, the reason, brackets, a new hope, okay? As we look through Ruth four, Lord willing, we will see the reason for the hope of the book of Ruth. We see a beautiful bow tied on the story, resolution, restoration. We see how true blessing from God comes in expected and unexpected ways. And that shapes for us our big idea this morning, which for the record, if you look in your bulletin, the big idea makes no sense, okay? It was an amalgamation. The big idea changed midweek. And uh, yeah, just ignore that. Uh, here's the big idea. Well, you can take some of the words, but here's the actual big idea, okay? True blessing from God is as good as we imagine and far better than we imagine. It's mostly there. The ingredients are there in the bulletin. I don't know what happened, though. Just uh, one of those weeks. True blessing from God is as good as we imagine and far better than we imagine. One more time for the slow writers. True blessing from God is as good as we imagine and far better than we imagine. That is what we see in the text this morning in Ruth chapter 4. There is so much visible 
resolution to this story. We talked about these same categories in week one. Emptiness turning to fullness. Famine turning to plenty. Sadness turning to joy. Bitterness turning to hope. There's so much more going on in the book of Ruth than simply earthly prosperity. We can know just from that statement alone, and as we read the book in its wider context and seeing the whole story of redemption, that it is not a guarantee of earthly prosperity. But as we saw two weeks ago, chapter 3 ended with sure hope, but hope that is yet to be fulfilled. And in Ruth chapter 4, we see those specific hopes fulfilled and so much more. As we see, the story ends in unexpected ways with true blessing from God that is far beyond what Ruth or Boaz or Naomi could have ever known. True blessing that when we look at this tiny little Old Testament book that happened thousands of years ago is our hope even today. True blessing that is Jesus, our Savior. And although he is not mentioned by name in the book of Ruth, the whole thing is pointing to him. Our Savior who, because he, of what he has done, promises in ways that are so much grander than material prosperity, he promises those same hopes for us. Emptiness turning to fullness, famine turning to plenty, sadness turning to joy, and bitterness turning to hope. And so, would you turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. When you've found it, or maybe you already have, would you stand with me for the reading of God's true word. And when I finish reading, I will say out loud, this is God's word, and if you believe that to be true, uh, I would invite you to join me in saying out loud, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word for us this morning. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by, So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, 
the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the name, gave him a name saying, "A son has been born to Naomi." They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. Ruth chapter 4. We see Boaz take action. Remember, Naomi said that. She said he will certainly settle this matter today, and indeed he is doing it. Now, different people have different perspectives on what Boaz is doing. They think he's being really strategic. You could maybe even use the word shrewd in the way he interacts with this other redeemer. But he lays out the situation. He really does lay out the facts. He's not being manipulative. But he does lay out a situation that, again, is very foreign to our ears. The fact that a close family relative was able to redeem a widow and to take care of the needs of the family. And so Boaz does exactly this. He lays out the situation. Naomi needs redeeming. She's selling the land that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. Remember, they had died. And so Naomi is left with this parcel of land, but she doesn't have much. She has her daughter-in-law with her, and that's about it. They are on their own. They are in great need. And so by the end of verse 4... This unnamed redeemer is willing to redeem. There is a level of tension. If you've never heard this story before, at verse 4 when he says, I will redeem it. I mean, it's one of those torn feelings. You know, if you're, you're really happy, you're like, good. Redemption for Ruth and Naomi. But man, what about Boaz? He's the man. What's going to happen? But then we see that Boaz shares the other important tidbit of information that there's a bit of a package deal going on. To redeem Naomi is to redeem her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And since Ruth is young enough uh, to be married and to have children, uh, the implication is here is that he would marry Ruth. 
Now, this is not mandated by law, but it does seem at this point, the way Boaz is sharing it, both his understanding, this redeemer's understanding, as well as the elders and the people around, their understanding that this is part of the general practice. Now, the law made provisions that the brother of a man who died would be able to, uh, and would be, in a sense, obligated to marry the widow. But in this, there's no indication that this redeemer or Boaz, their brothers, uh, and so it's not mandated by law, but there seems to be an accepted practice going on. And now, a wrong move here would be thinking that marriage to Ruth would be somehow undesirable. Uh, We heard in chapter 3 that Ruth is known as a worthy woman to all the townsmen. I mean, there's not much a higher compliment you can pay than that. But here we see an important part of the story. In a large sense, uh, a significant contrast to what we've seen so far. This redeemer, redeemer, is not willing to count the cost. Verse 6, it says, Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so our first point this morning as we consider true blessing is this. True blessing involves costly redemption. True blessing involves costly redemption. That one should be right in your bulletin, by the way. We should be good from now on, but it's okay if not. Now again, costly redemption has been a thread through this entire book. There's individuals counting the cost for the sake of others. Just as a quick survey of the book of Ruth, Ruth counts the cost by sticking by Naomi's side when there's little or nothing to gain by returning to Bethlehem. Ruth counts the cost by going out to glean in the fields. This is hot, hard, and dangerous work. Not necessar- this, is, this is work that's motivated by desperation and love. Boaz counts the cost. He demonstrates immense kindness to Ruth and therefore Naomi. Remember how? Through safety, through water, through food, through provisions. And again, Ruth counts the cost by listening to, in chapter 3, Naomi's instructions to go and ask Boaz to redeem them. Again, risky on so many levels. And then Boaz again counts the cost by saying that if uh, this redeemer won't redeem them, that as the Lord lives, he will do it. And then Boaz again sends Ruth back with arms full of food for Naomi. And so we just see this pattern of individuals counting the cost when there's not much to gain for them, uh, but much to gain for others. They count the cost to demonstrate love. But here we see a contrast. A cost is needed to be counted, and this supposed redeemer won't or can't do it. Now, it would be a misstep, I think, to just label this redeemer as the bad guy. He is the... You know, the, the bad dude in the story. I mean, we're missing so many details. Maybe he had very good reasons why he wouldn't redeem them or why he wouldn't even be able to redeem them. But what we can know, and this is likely why he remains nameless in the story, is not to shame him, uh, is that in some way, in some shape, or in some form, the cost is simply too great for him. I think that's clear in the text. Because when it was just Naomi and her land, I mean, Naomi is likely too old to have children. And so other than incurring the cost of, you know, supporting her and taking care of her needs, the Redeemer would have gained all this land and would have been able to add it to what he has. But when Ruth was brought into the picture, all of a sudden the variables changed. Now it seems like he would be expected to marry Ruth. If they had a son... This son would actually become not his heir, but the heir of Elimelech. 
receiving all that was his. And now, taking care of Naomi and Ruth, uh, potentially this son, potentially any other children they have, maintaining and farming the land, in all of this, uh, not contributing to his own legacy, his own inheritance. And so the irony here is this unnamed redeemer seems to be working to protect his legacy. And yet he remains the unnamed and maybe even failed redeemer. And yet Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandparents of King David. There is an unwillingness to count the cost. And again, we don't know all the motivation, but something else won out. Love costs something, always. And we can often measure our motives by looking at uh, how much love we are willing to give, how much we are willing to count the cost. Like this Redeemer, we are often willing to count the cost when it is advantageous to us, but what about when the variables change? What about applying this in a few different contexts? What about looking at our own discipleship? Are we willing to take seriously Jesus' own words when he says that we need to be absolutely all in when following him? Or do we prefer to create a bit of a hybrid approach to obedience where we take what we want and leave that which is asking too much of us? True discipleship costs something. Love costs something. Or look at our church. We want to be part of a committed church family, but when often that manifests itself only when we're on the receiving end of the relationship. But what about when it starts to cost something? Not only financially, although there is accounting the cost there too, but what about relationally? What about when you are asked to give up certain preferences for the sake of others? What about when there's a need to serve in a way that isn't something we love to do? What if we consider seriously the one another commands in Scripture? Committing to one another costs something. Love costs something. What about in our evangelism? What about in our love for others? Are you willing to count the cost and face the repercussions to share the life-saving news of the gospel with those around you? Or is the cost too great? Evangelism costs something. Love costs something. We see that God's plan is that blessing would come through these things. Jesus says that to follow him is to take up your cross and follow him. And so we need to stop watering down what it means to truly give ourselves to follow him. We need to count the cost, not fall into trying to gain the whole world yet forfeit our soul along the way. We see God's plan is that through the church that would be the main place that we are trained up that we would grow and that we would demonstrate our love for one another that would be obvious internally but also externally from the outside looking in we need to count the cost to commit to one another to love one another in the way that god intends through the local church and what about in our evangelism god's plan is that we would share this message of hope how can they believe that they they've never heard Evangelism is hard, but it's far easier in KW today than it ever was in the first century. It's far easier here than in most parts of the world. And I don't say that to shame you, because evangelism is hard. It is costly, but love costs something. Let's count the cost and love people enough to tell them that 
God has made a way to be made right with him. But in all of this, these are examples of counting the cost in our own lives consistent with what the Bible teaches. But true blessing involves costly redemption that is so much bigger than simply what we can do. The costliest redemption in all of history ushered in the truest blessing in all of history. What Jesus did for us on the cross was to stare straight into every implication, to stare straight into every changing variable, and to, although sinless, willingly go to the cross and die for our sins. He died to redeem humanity, to bear the weight of the world's sin and to count the cost, to pay the penalty that you and I deserve because of our rebellion against a perfect and holy God. This costs something. Because remember, love costs something. And greater love has no one than this than someone who did lay down his life for his friends. And so the gospel is the perfect picture of costly redemption that gives true blessing. Again, that's not, I'm not talking about, when I'm talking about blessing here, I'm not talking about, this isn't me just trying to be relevant, like hashtag blessed, you know. This is true blessing. And the gospel is the perfect picture of costly redemption that leads to true blessing. Again, so much more than earthly prosperity. This is sure hope. The fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead, in that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. And that by simply trusting in Christ and turning from your sin, you could be counted as righteous. Not because you yourself are righteous, but because Jesus took your place. And so on that day when Jesus died, your sin, past, present, future was paid for. That when God looked at Christ on the cross, he saw your sin. And now when he looks at you, if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ, he sees Christ in his righteousness. As the hymn says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him Yet pardon me. That is and was costly redemption because love costs something. And in the book of Ruth, whatever the implications were to the situation, Boaz is willing to count the cost. Again, maybe his circumstances were different than this unnamed redeemer, but still, there is a cost associated here with redeeming Naomi and Ruth. And he stands up in a second and commits to redeeming Naomi and Ruth even if there was a great cost to himself. And then we get this description of the great Birkenstock exchange. I think we should bring it back. I think this would really humble us in our Kijiji deals, you know? But the great sandal exchange, I mean, it's a practice that even seems distant to the original audience. There's a bit of a diversion here. The author says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel. And so even the original audience reading this might have been like, oh yeah, I remember hearing about that sandal thing. And there's, I mean, most scholars think there's some kind of symbolism here wrapped up in land, that the ground that we tread on in this kind of a relationship would be exchanged in a way that is tangible and symbolic with a sandal. Others say that to remove one's sandal was an act of humility. And so it was a way of of demonstrating submission, of giving up his rights to redemption. But we see Boaz stand up and make a promise that he will redeem them. And so our second point this morning is that true blessing involves 
kept promises. True blessing involves kept promises. Now we live in a world of broken promises. I know that you know the sting of broken promises. Be that through work, through politics, through marriage, through parents, through children. Every sphere of your life is stained by sin and broken promises. And this is why it is so radical to keep promises. And we can even become cynical when promises that are made are actually kept. It seems too good to be true. But we see Boaz is good on his word. He has prayed that the Lord would shelter Ruth under his wings. And little did he know at the time that he would not only be an agent of that kindness, he would, in a very real way, be an agent of redemption. He made that promise in chapter 3, verse 13. He said, I will redeem you. And he's good on his promise in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says that you are witnesses this day. I will redeem them. We see that redemption is grounded in promises that are made, and not just promises that are made, promises that are kept. This is the story of redemption in the Bible, that God makes promises and God keeps promises. Now these huge promises throughout the Bible between God and his people are called covenants. This is a really big promise. And it's these covenants that offer sure hope for God's people because they aren't reliant on fickle people doing what they promised they would do. These covenants are reliant on God doing what he said he will do and God always keeps his promises. We see more than a few glimmers of promise keeping in this text alone. For example, in Genesis 49 when Jacob blesses his sons, he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And here we see that Judah's line gets traced right to King David. The future king and this family line that eventually leads to Jesus himself. We see glimmers of hope too in the inclusion of more than just Jews in God's plan. Remember that Ruth here is a Moabite. And yet here we see not the first and certainly not the only indication that God's redemptive work will be available for all people. And in the gospel as a whole, the entire story of redemption, we see that God's promises are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. That there will be a new covenant, a new hope. True blessing, true hope because of God's kept promises. Another, Isaiah 11, we see the explicit reference that one would come from the root of Jesse to really, truly offer hope. This is just a sampling, but the Bible is chock full of promises that are made and promises that are kept. Kids that were at the How to Study Your Bible class, you remember very big generalization. We talked about the Old Testament being promises made and the New Testament being promises kept. And it's through God's promise to humanity that true blessing is found. And in a micro sense, we see exactly that unfolding in the book of Ruth. Not only with Boaz playing the role of redeemer, but in God's providential hand being all the way through it. We caught many of those clues along the way as we read through the book of Ruth, seemingly coincidental to the story coming together, but we see God's hand at work through his sovereignty, through his providence, 
And explicitly, even a few times, we see that God is at work. We see here, specifically in Ruth chapter 4, one of only a few times in the entire book where it's very clear that God does something directly. He gives conception to Ruth. Remember, Ruth was childless with Malon for 10 years, but now, explicitly, God is at work. Not just in the life of Ruth and Boaz, but we see, too, with this genealogy at the end, that there is a much bigger story going on than just Ruth and Boaz. Now, it's worth pausing for a second here, too, to consider, is this a promise that God will always give biological children? Well, the answer is, of course, no. And I know that many of you know the sting of this truth. But what we can know is that Ruth and Boaz's life and this story of redemption and all of this, God saw fit for this to happen. And although it may not be the way we expect and it may not even be the way that we desire at first glance, that same God is actively at work today and working for your good and for his glory. And so we need to trust him. We need to rest in the tension and beauty that his ways are higher than our ways. And it is these higher and grander ways that we see God at work in Ruth chapter 4, far beyond material and circumstantial blessing and provision. Again, that's the sense where, uh, that's the way we would expect him to work. That's blessing, but here we see true blessing. True blessing that involves costly redemption. True blessing that involves kept promises. And finally, we see true blessing involves a greater fullness to come. True blessing involves a greater fullness to come. If we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Our hope as Christians is not grounded in the here and now. There is promised greater fullness. And Ruth chapter 4, on multiple levels and in multiple ways, considers these multiple blessings that are given to Boaz, Naomi, and to Ruth. And we see that then this, it starts to tip, the story starts to change, that the blessings that are prayed over Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are that they would be incorporated into God's bigger plan. And, I th- and we can see that it's more than just figures of speech. That Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, the mothers of Israel as a people. That their house would be like that of Perez. That in another strange leveret marriage, God would move his plan of redemption forward. And in an amazing way, Ruth, we see this amazing transition. She goes from being a foreign, childless widow who is not even one of Boaz's servants to then being a maidservant, calling herself a servant, to then being called a worthy woman, to now being a wife and a mother in a line that not only brings the promised king after God's own heart, King David, the hope of Israel, but also the king of kings, King Jesus, the hope of the world. And of Naomi, the women praise God and proclaim that God has not left Naomi without a redeemer. Again, this is the woman who lost it all. She came back and wanted to rename her name Naomi, which means pleasant to bitter, because she felt the Lord had dealt so bitterly with her. She left, she went away with a husband and two sons, and she came away, or came back, she said, empty. But here again, talking to these women, they proclaim that this baby, Obed, would be a restorer of life. Naomi is far from empty. 
and she has Ruth, who has counted the cost and loved her well, who in her own sense is acting very much as a redeemer for her mother-in-law. And so not only, you know, empty, she says she has Ruth, who is more to Naomi than seven sons. Now, more than one scholar has noted that the number seven often marks perfection and completion. And so effectively, what they are saying is that Ruth is more to Naomi than all the sons in the world, which is an amazing compliment in 2022, but a far more amazing compliment in the time of the judges. When the whole desire would be that you would have a son to protect and care and bring up, carry on your legacy. What a statement. That would be, you know, hair-raising on your neck that Ruth is more to Naomi than all the sons in, in the world. And this is the beautiful turn that nobody could have known, that Naomi, the bitter, old, childless widow, is now the grandmother of the grandfather of King David. And so from our vantage point, we can see the greater fullness to come in their lives. How Ruth, the, as a book, fits like a puzzle piece in the 10,000-piece puzzle that God is putting together to save his people. Again, not just provisionally in the lives of the characters, not even in the generations later when a king would come that would bring needed reform and order and hope, but ultimately in the king of the world who would come to save his people from their sins. And this is the true blessing of the gospel that we rest in today. This is how we answer the question, what does it mean to be truly blessed? The fact that if you know Christ and he is the Lord and Savior of your life, you rest in sure hope today. You can know what it means to be truly blessed. You can see the grand tapestry of salvation and you can know it in your heart and all the while knowing that there's still a greater fullness to come that there will be a day that is promised where there will be no more tears there will be no more pain when all that is wrong will be made right when all the failures to count the cost when all the broken promises all the doubts and frustrations will be no more when our faith is turned to sight and it's, so it's these same points that we see in Ruth chapter 4 that give us sure hope today. Because the promises that God has made and the work that he has done in the past gives us absolute hope and security in the present and gives us full assurance of a greater fullness to come in the future. That is the hope of Ruth chapter 4. And so be reminded of that hope every time you turn to this little Old Testament book. Be reminded of that hope every time you see that thread of God's promises through the entire Old Testament. Be reminded of that hope when you read names like Ruth and Boaz in the names, uh, the lists of names, the genealogies of Christ that you're tempted to skip over in your Bible reading plan. And be reminded of that hope every time you turn your eyes upon Jesus. That is the hope of the gospel that we can know true blessing because of the most perfect and costly redemption. That we can know true blessing because the God of the universe 
loves us, makes promises, and keeps promises. And that we can know true blessing because the story is not over. There is an eternity ahead of seeing every promise fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you more than anything for who you are and for what you've done. For the costly redemption that our sin demanded and the costly redemption that was fulfilled in Christ. For the promises that you've made from the moment sin entered the world that you would redeem your people Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we see in the book of Ruth and how we can understand what it means to be truly blessed. God, break down the places in our lives where we have distorted what it means to be truly blessed. Help us to really pursue actual and absolute hope that's found in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.